0: Boy, certainly one of the more iconic moments this state, the return of Michael Jordan. And among other things, Bob Costa has been a part of whether it's Bob Knight, certainly the ABA days. Um, I think Indiana has held a lot of pretty important places, not only in the sports world, but for his broadcasting career. And uh, the gold standard of this industry joins us right now on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Bob, first off, I want to thank you for speaking to the students at IU a few weeks back, and certainly thank you for taking some time with us on this Thursday morning.
1: Hi, Kevin. How you doing?
0: I am great. Um, I guess when you hear back that call, maybe the lead-in to MJ's return game, you think back to your days down in Bloomington with Bob Knight, shooting the the ABA, what does the state of Indiana kind of mean to you from a broadcasting standpoint?
1: Well, it's almost all basketball in that respect. I've gone to a few Indianapolis Indians games. They're still called the Indians during my time, generally being around Indianapolis, to call basketball. Uh, And now I guess as I think about it, there was a Super Bowl in which the Giants, uh, for a second time, beat the Patriots that was held in Indianapolis. But apart from that uh, and the occasional minor league game, almost all those memories are basketball, including my early years in the ABA, The last two years of the league's existence, I was the voice of the spirits of St. Louis, who, unfortunately for them, or maybe in one sense, fortunately, didn't get in on the merger uh, with the NBA. The Pacers did. The Pacers were, as you know, the flagship franchise of the league. They won three of the nine championships during the league's existence, and the Nets, who had Dr. J, although they quickly traded him to the 76ers, they got in, and the San Antonio Spurs and the Denver Nuggets got in. The spirits didn't. I'll make this as brief as I possibly can. They struck a deal uh, with the NBA, which was trying to indemnify itself against antitrust suits and make the other surviving or not surviving ABA teams go away. And they satisfied them in different ways. And the Spirits owners said, what if we got a cut of the NBA's television rights? And at that time, those television rights weren't worth all that much in the mid-1970s. In fact, the NBA Finals were being seen in many markets on tape delay after the late news. So they said, sure. But there was a clause in there that said, in perpetuity. So the Spirits owners, who actually bought the franchise for about $3 million, wound up collecting something like a billion dollars before the NBA finally bought them out. So well. when I said unfortunately the Spirits didn't get in, maybe for basketball fans in St. Louis but not for the owners.
2: <laughs> Bob, I've always been curious because of that. And I think that your connection to the Spirits of St. Louis, I know notably in the city of St. Louis even with all of your vast baseball work, I think there was always kind of a a point of pride to St. Louisans about the fact that you were the voice of that franchise. And I also think that for that reason You know, Old guard Indiana Pacer fans took a pride in the fact that you were a part of ABA lore. Did you, and I know that you have to have an objectivity within your profession when you're doing games Mm -hmm. for the NBA and NBC, but did you yourself feel almost a part of a kinship to those four franchises of of which you mentioned?
1: No question. Um, And when the ABA players finally, in this past year, uh, got a settlement and pension benefits uh, that they long had sought, Uh, I was a modest part of that effort, calling it to the NBA's attention. A lot of it has to do with your first experiences when you're young and they resonate with you more. But also, the ABA uh, was such a crazy adventure. It was simultaneously ridiculous and sublime. And those of us who are part of it, even in a small way as an announcer, rather than a player, we're part of an everlasting fraternity. If I should cross paths with Dr. J or with... Bob Nettolicki or Freddie Lewis, who played uh, for, for the Pacers, or a whole list of other people, Iceman, George Gervin, people like that, Artis Gilmore, um, if I should cross paths with them, no matter what else is going on in the world or in basketball, the topic of conversation, either immediately or quickly, turns to the ABA. And when it comes to doing a game nationally, I think fans of every sport and every national announcer will tell you this. They somehow feel that the national broadcaster is not giving their team enough respect. I don't know how New York Yankee fans can possibly feel that network announcers are being unfair to them, but that's what partisanship does to blind people to logic and objectivity. So when I was doing a Pacers, let's say, against Lakers NBA final in 2000, I wasn't rooting for the Pacers or for the Lakers, but I was, to your point, aware Of the ABA history so if it was worth noting and if Pacer fans nodded uh, in appreciation if I noted that ABA history for example I remember when the Pacers came out for the first game of that final I noted how many championships the Lakers had won and I said the Pacers have not won an NBA championship but it's a point of pride that they won three of the nine ABA championships uh, just knowing that kind of stuff and tossing it in there where appropriate wasn't a matter of rooting, but it was a matter of understanding and appreciation.
0: the legendary Bob Costas, he's with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Bob, obviously you talk about polarizing figures in sports history, particularly in this state. I don't think there's anybody um, top the list more than Bob Knight. Uh, your interactions with him on, off the camera, how would you describe that relationship?
1: We had a very respectful, appreciative, and friendly relationship. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how Bob decided which members of the media he respected and didn't, uh, but we always got along very well. I think part of it was, you know, Bob was old-school loyal about this stuff. It just so happened that in the early 80s, I did the Big Ten game of the week, and the analyst on the games was Fred Taylor, who had been Bob's coach at Ohio State on teams that were very, very good. Um, Bob, I think, was the sixth man on those teams, but he was very loyal to his coach. And because of that connection, uh, I think he um, had a fond view of me. And he was willing to sit for interviews with me, some of which were just reminiscing and telling good stories. And Bob could be a great storyteller. He had a sharp wit. Um, When I say had, he's receded from the public eye for the most part now. So I'm thinking back on, on those moments, but also Bob was willing to sit for some rather pointed questions. It was never antagonistic, but I tried to make it journalistic, and I think he appreciated that. He never he never bristled at any of it. He'd stayed his case and maybe push back, but he understood that that was my job and he had his, and so we always have had a very good relationship.
2: Bob, I would think in terms of relationships, Bob Costas is our guest on the Payless Zickers Hotline. There is a a responsibility in broadcasting, as I mentioned, like an objectivity, but sometimes that can be compromised internally, I guess. Uh, I'm thinking of this, and if the timelines don't add up, I apologize, but I'm guessing that at some point O.J. Simpson would have been a colleague of yours. Of course he was, Um, yes. Yeah, and so you're doing the NBA Finals in 94, and you're having to – you know, to, to juxtapose between the game behind you and then throwing to Tom Brokaw in the studio about this fall from grace of your former colleague. When you look back on that, do you have like almost first-person recounts of it or was it all kind of a surreal blur and was it a challenge to just in that moment grasp everything that was taking place?
1: It was certainly unlike anything else that uh, I ever confronted during my career. But it wasn't really that much of a journalistic question because I wasn't interviewing O.J. I wasn't discussing the particulars of the case. By then, the murders had happened on Sunday. By then, it's Friday, Game 5 of the NBA Finals between the Rockets and the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. By then, O.J. had already been charged with the crime and described by the police as a fugitive from justice. So that much was known. And what was happening was, as those old enough to recall it, will vividly remember, uh, he's in a white Bronco being driven by his former teammate and longtime friend, A.C. Cowlings, and it's moving down the 405, one of the freeways in Los Angeles, and you couldn't even really call it a chase. It's almost like it's a slow speed thing, and there's all kinds of helicopter cameras, so for hours, this this process of the Bronco making its way to who knows where eventually it was his home in Brentwood. And the country of course was riveted by this and NBC sports had to, and news had to make a decision. What were we going to do? I wasn't part of this decision. Dick Ebersol, who ran NBC sports and did so brilliantly had to make the decision. What do we do? Uh, this wasn't a regular season game. It was the fifth game of the finals tied two games to two. And so part of the time, they had me come on the air, halftime or pregame show, throw it to Tom Brokaw. Uh, Another part of the time, while the game was going on, sometimes we went full screen to the game. Other times, half the screen was the game, and the other half was this Bronco just moving at about 30 miles an hour down the freeway with almost no other cars around it. Of course, at the time, we didn't know how it would resolve itself. Uh, A.C. Cowlings had said... They had a a car phone, which then was not a given. Uh, Most people didn't have cell phones in 1994, uh, but Cowlings was in touch with the police. And so he's telling them that O.J. has a gun to his head. So we don't know if he's going to shoot himself in the car. We don't know when when he finally arrives at his home in Brentwood, whether he'll surrender peacefully or whether there's a confrontation with the police. Nobody knows. So it's tremendously tense. And many of us at NBC had worked with OJ, and whatever we now know or think we know about him, all we knew him as was one of the most personable and friendly and enjoyable to be around people uh, that we had worked with. Ahmad Rashad was especially close to him, and Ahmad was very shaken. Uh, OJ wrote what could only be interpreted as a suicide note, and the police had that note that day, and portions of it were known to the public. And he mentioned many of his close friends. Ahmad was one of them. So did we have a personal stake in this? Yeah. There were people who were weeping, but there's a professional job you have to do. And luckily for me, it didn't require me to speculate about any of the aspects of the case or anything like that. It was evident what was happening. Tom Brokaw described it as a Shakespearean tragedy or a Greek tragedy. I can't remember which. Um And that's what it was when you consider what O.J. had been and the circumstances now surrounding him. Um, And so I think the only thing to do in that situation was to be as down the middle as you possibly could. There was no need to embellish it or say how tragic or awful or terrible or dramatic or theatrical it was. It was apparent to everyone watching that it was all those things. Uh, There was a documentary done about it, and apparently they... uh, not apparently, they did somehow uh, acquire some footage of me from off the air, and I'm talking to the producers, and they had wanted me to note the score at halftime and whatnot, and you, you hear me talking back to the uh, producers, not angrily, but saying, there's no need for that. I don't need to identify myself. I don't need to say what the score was. I don't need to say how many points Ewing or Olajuwon has. Let's just get to Tom Brokaw and, and let him handle it. Uh, he was the face of NBC News, and rightly so. So, as as dramatic as it may have seemed, the only difficult part was to be detached. Uh, it wasn't that difficult in terms of journalism at all, but to be emotionally detached—that was, I guess, the tricky part. And I guess we were able to do that.
0: Bob, what's the most um, what's the most nervous, maybe the most challenging interview you've ever walked into?
1: Um, you know. This is not really that uh, a question of journalism that much, but I think this is true for all of us. The stuff that really struck you when you were young has greater meaning. And so when I interviewed Paul McCartney for the late-night show that I had on NBC after David Letterman, which was not a sports show, we had occasional sports guests, but mostly it was across the spectrum of interesting people. So McCartney at that time, he's much more accessible now. The landscape has changed in media. But at that time, he had not done a televised interview in the United States in 10 years. Um, And as he sat down, it was 1991, as he came into the studio, couldn't have been nicer, put me immediately at ease, despite his mega fame. He was a very approachable person, is a very approachable person. Uh, All I can think about is being 11 years old, and sitting on the floor in the living room of my parents' home and watching the Beatles in black and white on the Ed Sullivan show, which was a huge thing in 1964, uh, and wondering, and I didn't often have this thought, but wondering, I wonder if the people I went to school with, to grade school and high school, might be watching this and saying, oh, my gosh, Bobby Casas is talking to Paul McCartney. So it was for that reason. Um, you know, if you're of a certain age interviewing let's say will chamberlain might be more intimidating than interviewing michael jordan or lebron james because will chamberlain was a big deal when you were a kid so i don't know there was <clears throat> it was challenging or nervous but a certain kind of excitement more than anxiety attaches itself to moments like that
2: well bob i think the thing that bob costas is our guest <clears throat> on the Payless liquors hotline you know i i think the thing that Your career is unparalleled and unprecedented, certainly in its decoration and in those things across the board that you have been able to do. And so we, as the spectators and the viewers and the listeners, look at it and say that you were always poised and had the right thing to say or do in those moments, clearly. But for you personally, I think it's important for people to understand this, especially young people that might be listening. I'm guessing there had to be a moment in your career where despite the accolade, you felt that you failed yourself or fell short of where you wanted to be. And I think it's important for everyone to realize that even the very best of the best have moments or days where the bar was higher than where they felt they were. Can you tell me one of those moments and how you handled it?
1: I can think of a couple. I'll confine it to one. Um, In 2012, December of 2012, Jovan Belcher, uh, linebacker with the Kansas City Chiefs, murdered his fiancée and then went to the Chiefs' training facility and in front of his coach and the general manager of the team shot himself in the parking lot and killed himself. Uh, So it's a murder-suicide situation. And I think it happened on a Friday. And so throughout the weekend, whether it was ESPN or other sports outlets, And all the pregame and halftime and studio shows, NFL Network, and all the networks that carry games on Sunday, they'd all covered it from various angles. And usually, uh, I was hosting the pregame, halftime, and postgame from the site of the Sunday night football games, which was the most widely seen stuff, uh, widely seen programming in all of American television at that time. I guess it still is. So... By then, everything that could be said from a certain direction seemingly had been said. And I didn't know that I was even going to be on at halftime that night because they had devoted the entire halftime. They didn't even show any highlights. They devoted the entire halftime to interviews with Chiefs players and personnel. And then with about four minutes to go in the second quarter, they said, we'd like you to do 90 seconds. And Jason Whitlock who ironically has since gone on to become something of uh, a hero of the right wing, uh, which is fine, that's his choice. He was a very prominent Kansas City sports writer. He would played football himself, and he was based in Kansas City. And he wrote a long piece, which was available online uh, on Sunday. And a producer handed me that piece, highlighting a-, a portion which Jason had written about a gun culture in sports and in America not gun control, not anti-Second Amendment. I don't think there are many people who have a problem with a sane interpretation of the Second Amendment. <clears throat> but he was saying that there is a an attitude toward guns uh, that has pervaded parts of the sports world, and it never leads to anything good. And I quoted that. I didn't have enough time, I thought, to put something together myself. I quoted that, and I really misjudged how volatile an issue that is, and how to this day there are people who think that I would be happy if every gun in America, like all nearly 400 million guns in America, were confiscated, or that I oppose the Second Amendment. No, I don't oppose a sane interpretation of the Second Amendment. As anyone can see in all the subsequent events since then, Sandy Hook happened only weeks after that, and all the other school shootings and, and mass shootings in this country, we have a problem. I thought it was self-evident that that problem had touched the sports world. If you were to Google even today, athletes with guns, the long, long list of folly, criminality, and tragedy attached to that would take forever to read on the air. If in fairness, you wanted to Google athletes with guns and something good comes out of it, that's a very, very short list. That doesn't mean that we should repeal the Second Amendment, but it is an issue. So I put it out there, and I was foolish to think that everyone would understand what I was saying. But it's such, or what Jason Whitlock had said, was such a hot-button issue that people have, they go off on it. As soon as the subject is guns, there are people in this country, the NRA and others, who immediately go from A to Z, and the interpretation is uh, they want to take our guns away. They don't want us to be able to defend ourselves. Uh, they think that the gun itself causes an inanimate object, caused the, uh, the tragedy. Uh, they're putting the blame on the gun rather than on the perpetrator, none of which was true. But I should have been sophisticated enough to understand that that was the possible reaction. And then what, also in retrospect, I had failed to do was I could have, I'm fairly good through the years, Living on the air, I didn't have to have something written, I could have done it off the top of my head. And what I should have said in that moment is whenever tragedy intrudes upon our games, you hear a number of by now almost offensive cliches, thoughts, and prayers, and this really puts it all in perspective. And yet, that perspective seems to last for about five minutes until we begin obsessing again about the game or what our team might do in the second round of the draft, if we're really looking for some perspective to come out of moments like this, then a truly serious and ongoing conversation should begin about a number of issues. First and foremost, domestic violence. And are those who play a brutal and violent game more inclined toward domestic violence and violence itself? Than their athletic peers we know that the brain is not fully developed roughly speaking until someone is 25 years old what about damage to the prefrontal cortex which has an effect on impulse control what about the possible witches brew mixture of that with performance enhancing drugs alcohol recreational drugs that's something we should focus on along with the whole relationship of athletes and guns Not talking here about anyone's responsible, lawful exercise of the legitimate Second Amendment rights, but about a certain attitude toward guns that pervades parts of society, including including the sports world. Now, I just said that to you off the top of my head. I could have said that that night and should have said that that night and put the focus on domestic violence. So it was a missed opportunity. I actually regret missing the opportunity to focus on domestic violence more so than I regret, although I do, the fact that a lot of people still, for some ridiculous illogical reason, think I said something I didn't say or that I ever believed something I've never believed.
0: Bob, we'll end with this, and we can't thank you enough for your time this morning and all the stories. Um, Mark, our producer, led off with Michael Jordan's return game at Market Square Arena, and your intro from that game, what memories do you have of that moment and you know, taking the mic to paint the picture of one of the more iconic moments the sports world has ever seen?
1: Oh, well, It was a deeply dramatic moment, and I guess it might have been slightly more dramatic if it had happened in Chicago, but I think it was good that it happened in Indianapolis at Market Square Arena because basketball fans in Indiana, whether it's high school, college, pro, Basketball fans in Indiana are deeply appreciative. They understand the history, and they appreciated the moment. Uh, They were very receptive to Michael Jordan, and they were very appreciative when he came out on the floor. And it's one of those little challenges. It doesn't really matter all that much uh, in terms of the history of the world, but it's one of those little moments where there's a challenge as a broadcaster. There wasn't any script. Whatever it was, I said I had lived. Um, and you didn't know for exactly what the reaction would be. And so I think that we captured that moment pretty well, and that's what your job is. It's not that big of a deal, but whatever your job is, you're a carpenter, you're a bus driver, whatever your job is, you want to do it as well as you possibly can. That's where the satisfaction comes, and I think we did a good job in that moment.
2: Bob, my last question would be this. It is oftentimes... I guess, the role of the viewing audience, the fans, other media people to determine what we believe to be the defining moment of a broadcaster's career or their signature pinnacle call. But what is yours in terms of your viewpoint? When you look back on your career and the totality of your career and all of the great moments, all of the great sports and the vast thing that that all encompasses, the one to you that you would most want people to remember about Bob Costas is which?
1: Well, I guess if I had to pick one, it would be Michael Jordan's last shot as a Chicago Bull against Utah in the NBA Finals in 98, because the coverage of that game combined a couple of things that through my career I hope I did reasonably well. You want to call the play well, but you also want to frame the moment when it calls for it. Not every moment is worthy of that treatment, but sometimes... Uh, a situation will rise to that level. Think of Vin Scully's call of Hank Aaron's home run, his 715th home run, to pass Babe Ruth. And those who are old enough to remember realize that that moment was very, very different than when Barry Bonds hit 756 to pass Hank Aaron's record. That moment was freighted with not just sports drama, but with sociological significance because of the racism that Aaron had faced Uh, as he pursued Ruth's record. Milo Hamilton called that moment on the radio. He was the radio voice of the Braves. And his call as a baseball play-by-play call is excellent. Scully, however, in the aftermath, after the tumult from the crowd had subsided, Scully said, What a wonderful moment for baseball and for America. A black man is receiving a standing ovation in the Deep South for passing a record of an all-time baseball idol. Framing that moment in that way, when you hear what Vin said, and there was more, when you hear what Vin said in that moment, you realize that he captured not just the baseball significance, but the larger significance. With Jordan's shot, it wasn't exactly the same in all respects, but it was clear that this was the end. We didn't know he'd come back and play for the Washington Wizards. It's almost a footnote. This is really the the capstone moment of Michael Jordan's career, I think what I said in the moments surrounding that while the game was going on still holds up pretty well. I hadn't heard much of it for 20 years until the last dance documentary came along a few years ago, and it was filled with uh, NBC coverage of that last season, and I was happy to say that or feel that most of it held up pretty well. So the call holds up, and then NBC asked me to do kind of a closing essay about the the Bulls' dynasty and Jordan's career. And if I guess if I could uh, save one thing, and I haven't given it that much thought, but if I could save one thing, it would be that call of that game, especially the closing moments of that game, and then the essay at the end, because it encompasses some of the things that I tried to do during my career, and I guess that night I did them reasonably well.
0: Bob, cannot thank you enough for, again, what you did a couple of weeks ago, just the throw of a lifetime for those students in Bloomington. And I thought it was just great storytelling and and the core beliefs, that, that true and pertinent one. I know I said that to you, but that's the one that I think stands above the rest for me. So I appreciate you doing that and certainly appreciate you giving some time with us here on this Thursday morning. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Kevin.